Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, why don't we go ahead and get started, if you could please stand for our opening prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee, O heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker tonight, Dr. Daniel Van Slyke, is Associate Professor of Church History, the Seminary for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. He teaches church history, sacraments, and theology to seminarians, the permanent diaconate candidates, and lay adult students. He holds a Master's in Theology from the University of Dallas, a Licentiate in Sacred Theology from the University of St. Mary of the Lake, and a Doctorate in Historical Theology from St. Louis University with special interest in ancient history and Christian worship, Dr. Slyke. Van Slyke has lectured widely and published articles in various venues, including Adoramus, the Homiletic and Pastoral Review, and the New Catholic Encyclopedia. His book on the Sacraments Liturgy 101, Sacraments and Sacramentals, was released by Liguri Publications in 2010. He and his wife, Laura, have seven children. Do you want to know their names? Mary Magdalene, John... Andrew, Mary Morningstar, Martha Bethany, Jerome Maximilian, Josephine, Felicity, Damien, Augustine, and I'm sure there are many more on the way, and he's way too young to have seven children, but please welcome Dr. Daniel Van Slyke. I'm really not too young to have seven children. <laughs> there are some people that get started well before I did. But if you wonder why at times I seem to have a dazed look on my face or I can't hear people that are talking to me, that's because I, I do have seven children. <laughs> the, the title that I was given for this talk is a great one, Reform, Ruin, and Restoration of the Roman Mass. That'll be my focus. And as Deacon Sabatino explained, the goal is to understand what happened after the Second Vatican Council, and especially what is happening right now in the pontificate of Pope Benedict XVI, which I will qualify as restoration. Ruin is a wonderfully unambiguous word. You know that it's negative. Reform, on the other hand, admits of interpretation. One person's reform could be another person's ruin. 
There's no doubt about that. But I'm going to refer to reform as a sort of project which sometimes leads to ruin. This series of three talks is based upon a principle that is often obscured in the noisy and sometimes contentious field of liturgical discourse. The purpose of sacred worship, the summit of which is the most holy sacrifice of the altar, is twofold. The glorification of God and the sanctification of man. Of these two ends of divine worship, the first is the chief and the greatest, to give honor and glory to God. When would-be reformers lose track of this twofold purpose, the result is ruin, what one might call liturgical shipwreck. The thesis of these talks then follows. Liturgical reformers that do not keep foremost in their minds the fact that the Mass is, above all things, oriented towards the praise of God, will approach liturgy as an opportunity to consolidate their own political or theological power. If you don't see liturgy first and foremost as the praise of God, then as a reformer, you will begin to express your own creativity or to implement your own pet scholarly theories or to achieve any other conceivable end here on earth. As a result of these misguided programs of liturgical reform, very often they do lead to liturgical ruin. And then afterwards, more humble, more stable, and more Christ-centered minds must begin a process of restoration. And when we end the final talk, I'll look at one of those minds, which would be the mind of Pope Benedict XVI. These three talks will illustrate this thesis by examining three moments or movements of reform that led to ruin. First, the reform of the Mass attempted by Martin Luther in the 16th century. Second, the reform of the Mass at the hands of the Gallicanist clergy in France from the 17th to the 18th centuries. And then finally, the reform of the Mass championed by the liturgical movement of the 20th century. In each of these cases, the liturgical ruin that followed the attempted reform was addressed by stable and Christ-centered minds. Luther's challenge was met by the Fathers of the Council of Trent and then by Pope St. Pius V. The Gallicanist liturgical chaos was reversed by the efforts of the French Benedictine, Dom Prosper Garanger. Finally, the widespread, although not consistent, liturgical ruin that was introduced by the liturgical movement of the 20th century is even now being corrected through the patient labors of Pope Benedict XVI. Now let us turn to the first would-be reformer of the Mass, whose efforts led to chaos and ruin. Martin Luther became a liturgical reformer because that proved necessary in order to consolidate and inculcate his own pet theological opinions.
Luther most fully articulated these opinions with regard to liturgy in a work that he wrote in 1520 called The Pagan Servitude or Babylonian Captivity of the Church. The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, which is a scathing denunciation of Roman Catholic theology and practice of the seven sacraments. Written in 1520, Luther's Babylonian Captivity is the first and most influential of all Protestant treatises on the sacraments. Within the work, Luther attacks what he calls the three captivities through which the Bishop of Rome has deformed the Eucharist, which he more habitually calls the Lord's Supper. The three captivities follow. Number one, withholding the chalice from the laity. Luther insists that all of the faithful, rather than the priest alone, should receive from both the species of bread and the species of wine at every celebration of the Lord's Supper. The communion of the faithful is in fact so integral to the Mass in the mind of Martin Luther that if there are no faithful to receive Holy Communion, then the Mass should not be celebrated. Let me just give you a little background. At this time, the faithful would receive under only one species that was usually under the form of bread, so the consecrated hosts. Next, Luther rejects the dogma of transubstantiation as an absurd philosophical opinion. Unlike most other Protestant reformers of the 16th century, Luther does believe that Christ is really present in the bread and in the wine. However, he does believe that the wine and the bread remain as well. This doctrine has been called by others consubstantiation. The idea for Luther is, again, Christ is really present, but so is bread. Therefore, if you were to worship the Eucharistic species, you would be worshiping bread as well as Christ. And so Lutherans do not worship the Eucharist the way Catholics do. So, to summarize that second captivity of the Eucharist, according to Martin Luther, is belief in transubstantiation, belief that the whole species or the whole physical reality of bread is turned into the whole physical reality of the body of Christ, and that the wine is turned into, transubstantiated into the blood of Christ, such that there is no bread left and there is no wine left, only appearances thereof, which we call species. Species equals appearance. The third captivity of the Mass, of the Lord's Supper, according to Martin Luther, is the notion that the Mass is a good work and a sacrifice. Here, Luther is extremely radical. He is the first person in Christian history to ever deny that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. It was always presumed by all Christians, by all Catholics, that the Eucharist was indeed a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
But for Luther, it's blasphemy to call the Eucharist a sacrifice. He says that we blaspheme the pure gift of God's forgiveness of sins by attempting to offer human works to God, a sacrifice by which we save ourselves. That obviously is a misinterpretation of Catholic understanding of the sacrifice. And we'll get to the proper understanding of sacrifice with the Council of Trent momentarily. But to review those three captivities of the Lord's Supper, according to Martin Luther, the first is withholding the chalice from the laity. The second is the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is behind our worship of the Eucharistic species. And the third is the notion that the Mass is a sacrifice, which nobody had ever denied before this time. There were others, by the way, who had argued that the faithful should be able to receive communion under both species. That was not new. Uh, but to deny that the Mass was a sacrifice was indeed new. And I want to dwell on this for a moment. Let's pause to jump from 1520 to 2001 in order to see the relevance of Luther's insistence, which was novel at the time, that the Mass is not a sacrifice. In 2001, then-Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, noted, and I'm quoting from this point on, a troubling problem to which we should face up. A sizable party of Catholic liturgists seems to have practically arrived at the conclusion that Luther, rather than Trent, was substantially right in the 16th century debate. One can detect much the same position in the post-conciliar discussions on the priesthood. It is only against this background of the effective denial of the authority of Trent that the bitterness of the struggle against allowing the celebration of Mass according to the 1962 Missal after the liturgical reform can be understood. End quote. Those were all the words of Cardinal Ratzinger. To summarize, he's arguing that there are a good number of Catholic liturgists who think that Luther was right and the Mass is not a sacrifice. And he goes on to say that if you believe with Luther that the Mass is not a sacrifice and you claim to be a Catholic liturgist, then you will not be able to abide any celebration of the Mass as revised after the Council of Trent. That's the 1962 Missal. It's what is known as the Tridentine Mass loosely, or the extraordinary form. In fact, the trend of backing Luther's anti-sacrificial view of the Eucharist and rejecting the Council of Trent was rampant in the liturgical movement of the mid-20th century. We'll discuss that in more detail in our second session. It feeds into what Cardinal Ratzinger has called a hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture. That is, the tendency to view the Mass, the specific example that concerns us, this affects many other areas of Catholic belief and practice as well, but this hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture entails a tendency 
to view the mass of the post-Vatican II period as a new entity, unrelated to and out of harmony, if not in stark contrast to the Roman Mass as celebrated from the Council of Trent until the Second Vatican Council, the extraordinary form. But right now, let us return to the 16th century. That was just to show the relevance of these debates still today in the uh, 21st. There was disagreement among Protestants regarding the Eucharist. Luther started the Protestant Revolution, but it very soon spun out of his control. There are, however, certain things that unite Protestants, and they basically are criticisms of Catholic doctrine on the Eucharist. Now, this is the one thing that all Protestants can agree on, that the Catholics are wrong. Beyond that, they don't agree on much in the realm of sacramental theology. Above all, all the Protestants of the 16th century, and pretty much all the Protestants of today, will deny that the Mass is a sacrifice. This is absolutely fundamental. They refuse to believe that the Mass is a sacrifice. Now, if we pause for a moment to think of the implications of this, they include, if there's nobody present to receive communion, then you don't offer it, because communion is the, is the big issue, not sacrifice. You would not offer Mass for the dead if the Mass were not a sacrifice because the dead can't receive Holy Communion. Uh, you do not need Masses, again, being offered in private or alone by priests. A congregation must be present. And a priest is necessary to offer a sacrifice. If you don't have a sacrifice, you don't need a priesthood. And Luther also will argue against the priesthood. All these follow from denying that the Mass is a sacrifice. In fact, it actually strikes at the root of the entire Catholic sacramental system. It all falls. That's why it's so fundamental a doctrine of Protestants that Catholics be wrong about the Mass being a sacrifice. They also agree, all Protestants, in rejecting transubstantiation as a means of explaining the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. And finally, uh, in general, they disagree with the practice of withholding the cup or the chalice from the laity. But that's not quite as central because there are a number of Protestant groups that do not celebrate the Lord's Supper at all or if they do, celebrate it extremely infrequently. So that's not quite as universal uh, an issue, as are the issues of sacrifice and transubstantiation. Now let's get to what divides Protestant Eucharistic teachings. The first and biggest question is how to explain the Eucharistic presence. This problem became acute at what's called the Marburg Colloquy, in October of 1529. October is a big month if you're a Protestant, by the way. Reformation Day falls in October, uh, as does the anniversary of the Marburg Colloquy. 
A number of reformers met at that time to try to resolve differences over their interpretation of the Eucharist. In particular, what did the Lord mean when he said, this is my body, in the Gospels? Luther interprets this literally, and so Luther believes in a real presence. He's about the only Protestant to insist upon a real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now again, he will not explain this with the theory of transubstantiation. He rejects that out of hand. The others who were present at the colloquy, major reformers including Philip Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Ocalampadius, he has a big name, basically did not believe that Christ was really present in the Eucharistic species, the bread and the wine. In their case, they would call it simply bread and simply wine, merely a memorial of the Lord's Supper or a remembrance there's nothing other than bread and wine present. Some of them may even argue that there's a spiritual presence or a presence in power of the Lord, but that wouldn't distinguish the Eucharist from any other sacrament. As Catholics, we believe the Eucharist is the most holy sacrament because Christ is present there really, truly, and substantially. So this question of the Eucharist really was never resolved, and it continues to divide Protestants to this day. The divisions among the founders of Protestants were natural extensions of Luther's rejection of authority. Authority is a major issue. It was in the 16th century, and it is in the 21st. When he rejected the Pope and councils, as well as tradition, as norms of theological or liturgical practice, he quickly found that others could just as readily reject him. And that's what many of the early Protestants did. On the practical level, the division of early Protestant Eucharistic theology quickly then led to a broad diversity of liturgical practice as well. 16th century Protestant lands became a hotbed of scandalous diversity. We think the clown masses of the 70s are bad. It housed everything from the most conservative form of the medieval mass to groups who, again, entirely rejected the Lord's Supper at all, or even congregations gathering together. Now, Luther responded to this. He felt the need to respond by trying to give a pattern of the celebration of the mass. He also gave a pattern for the celebration of baptism and some other sacraments, but our interest, again, is the Mass. On the one hand, Luther's theology of the Mass was not being sufficiently implemented for his tastes. He met a good deal of resistance to his efforts. Uh, particularly, the laity did not want to receive frequent communion. This seems funny to us today, but e many of the early Protestants again, those who actually wanted to celebrate Holy Communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, actually wanted the faithful to receive. Again, that was a principle, that you shouldn't hold it unless the faithful are receiving communion. But it wasn't the habit of the faithful to regularly receive at the celebration of the Mass. And even the Protestants had a hard time making them receive. 
Calvin, for example, attempted to do so, and eventually he gave up on offering the Lord's Supper and offered it only a very few times a year. So on the one hand, there was resistance from, you might say, a conservative background. On the other hand, there were some zealous reformers in Wittenberg, for example, where Luther was located, who wanted to implement his ideas drastically and quickly. And Luther sought to slow them down, lest they cause scandal and offense to the faithful. These factors led him, again, to become a liturgist. And so in 1523, he penned in Latin an order of the Mass and Communion for the church at Wittenberg. Now, notice an order of Mass and Communion. The Communion is very central for him. At the church, for the church at Wittenberg. Remember, sacrifice has to be removed. So Luther's chief enemy, the chief problem, if you will, that he had in the Mass was the canon of the Mass. The canon is, at that time, Eucharistic prayer number one was the only Eucharistic prayer. And it's all about offering and sacrifice. And Luther had to get rid of it all. He has some pretty vehement words for the canon. Now, I'm going to read you some of Luther because, in my mind, one of the most effective antidotes to Lutheranism is to actually read Luther. Uh, here's what he says about the canon. That abominable concoction drawn from everyone's sewer and cesspool. The mass became a sacrifice because of the canon. Offertories and collects were added, whereupon the mass began to be a priestly monopoly, devouring the wealth of the whole world and engulfing it, as with an apocalyptic plague, with a host of rich, lazy, powerful, lascivious, and corrupt celibates. Thus came the masses for the departed, for journeys, for prosperity. But who can even name the causes for which the mass was made a sacrifice? End quote. So most of the canon is thrown away by Martin Luther. All that he really keeps of it are the words of institution, which are quoted from sacred scripture. They're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. So Luther's mass consisted then of the following. The introits, these are the, it's an opening psalm, which is sung. Those of you who go to daily mass may be familiar with it. The Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. One prayer, opening prayer, we call them today. Collect, it was called then. If it is evangelical, he says, we'll keep it and use it. The epistle, so the reading from a New Testament epistle, although he thought the readings should be changed, so some more of St. Paul's teaching about faith should be read and a little bit less about moral behavior in the course of the year. At this time, there was a one-year cycle of scripture readings uh, as opposed to a two- or three-year cycle. The gradual, he kept, that was a psalm verse or a psalm that was sung through. The gospel reading. He's ambivalent about the use of the Nicene Creed. He says, quote, The custom of singing the Nicene Creed does not displease us, yet this matter should also be left in the hands of the bishop. End quote. He called the 
pastors of the churches, the parish priests, bishops. That was his way of showing that the bishops weren't very important. Uh, the offertory he rejects as, quote, an utter abomination. So the offertory, which we today call preparation of the gifts, uh, because that was seen as very sacrificial in nature. Quote, let us repudiate everything that smacks of sacrifice together with the entire canon and retain only that which is pure and holy and so order our mass, end quote. So then come the words of institution. He keeps the words of institution, which he says indeed are all that matters. The Sanctus and the Benedictus, the Holy, 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 those are sung after the words of institution in Luther's Mass here. Then the Lord's Prayer, a sign of peace, the Lamb of God, and reception of Holy Communion on the part of all present. And he insisted that everyone present receive it under both kinds. After outlining his version of the Mass, Luther expresses his wish, too, that vernacular songs be composed for singing during Mass. This really wasn't a custom in the 16th century. And in order to facilitate this, Luther himself wrote 37 hymns. He also indicates that he looks forward to a time when the whole Mass is sung in the vernacular language. So for him, that's German. All of that is in Luther's first revision or model for conducting a Lord's Supper, a Mass and communion service of 1523. In 1526, he wrote a second one that was more radical in some ways. I won't belabor the details, but I'll just point out a few differences from his previous version of the Mass. First, this Mass is entirely in German. In fact, Luther is at pains to place it in a very high and fine style of German. He wants it to sound like poetry, and he wants the music to be pointed according to the genius of the German language. He's trying to create a work of high German literary value, which he also tried to do with his translation of the Bible, and in fact he did. He stamped German literature for centuries to come. Uh, there's a parallel here, by the way, with what Cranmer did with the King James Bible and also with the vernacular English version of liturgy, uh, liturgical celebrations in England. He, too, aimed for a high style, a kind of poetic mode of speech that would last because of its intrinsic merits. Uh, that is a contrast with our vernacular liturgies that we've been working with which were actually written for a fourth grade reading level, just so you know, literally. I'm not really joking. Wish I were, uh, but that is the case. Okay, so first of all, then, we have the German and the attempt to make this a high and fine style of German. Second, Luther introduces his notion that the celebrant should face the congregation. And I quote, In the true mass, however, of real Christians, the altar should not remain where it is, and the priest should always face the people, as Christ doubtlessly did in the Last Supper. End quote. And just as a, as a point to note, he was wrong about the Last Supper. He was basing his observations on Renaissance paintings. And this is a, a fact that 
Cardinal Ratzinger points out. And Cardinal Ratzinger very much argues uh, that there was great value to the tradition of the priest facing east. We can get to that later. Finally, Luther argues for more unity, even while refusing to impose his mass on anyone. He doesn't feel like he can impose it because in his theology, the Christian man should be free, free to do anything that doesn't contradict faith. And so he can't theologically, because of his own principles, impose his version of the mass on everybody. That's why he tries to make it such a fine and compelling style of German, so that people will accept it, not on the basis of his authority, but on the basis of its own intrinsic merits. But at the same time, he recognizes that some kind of liturgical uniformity is necessary, and so he does exhort his pastors to this. Quote, we cannot have one do it one way today and another, another way tomorrow and let everybody parade his talents and confuse the people so that they can neither learn nor retain anything. What chiefly matters is the teaching and guiding of the people. That is why here we must limit our freedom. End quote. So much then for Martin Luther. Luther's version of the Mass was eventually imposed by the German princes on a large part of Germany because of the liturgical chaos. Uh, but that liturgical chaos continued to reign in the sense that not everybody was Lutheran. Uh, there were many other Protestant groups, and they continued to follow their own liturgical practices, which were progressively more and more different from the Catholic Mass and indeed from Martin Luther's Mass. Now we get to the restoration of the 16th century. You're all a very polite audience, very quiet and rapt with attention. This is much better than trying to talk to my children. <laughs> my favorite are the two and a half, three-year-old girls. I don't know why, but that's the time where mama can't stand them for some reason, so all of a sudden the sun rises and sets on daddy. They're a lot of fun. We have looked now at attempts to reform in the 16th century the Mass and the theology of the Mass, which have led to ruin, liturgical chaos, liturgical shipwreck. What I'd like to do now is look at the restoration of the 16th century, which was initiated by the Council of Trent. Now, this restoration is only going to affect the Catholic world. You have to keep in mind that at this point, the lines are rather firmly drawn. So unfortunately, uh, the Protestant part of Europe is lost to this restoration of the liturgy. But the Catholic world will benefit from it from many centuries to come. The Council of Trent, in, it meets over a period of about 20 years. It starts and then it has to stop, uh, starts again, has to stop. A pope dies or a Lutheran army attacks Rome or something like that. So for various reasons, the council had to stop and start again on a number of occasions. During three of its sessions, it addressed the topic of the Mass. And I want to briefly review what was said in each of those sessions. Nobody's telling me that I need to wrap it up or anything, so I guess we can go on till 10 or so, huh? <laughs> I could go into a great deal of detail about the Council of Trent. As a matter of fact, I would love to, uh, because it's so fundamentally important. You will find, as you read the documents of the Magisterium in recent years, for example, the Catechism, 
when you look at the Catechism and it's talking about the doctrine of the Mass, it will quote the Council of Trent. Pope Paul VI, in his beautiful encyclical on the Eucharist, Mysterium Fidei, quotes extensively from the Council of Trent. And in that encyclical, Pope Paul VI says that you cannot teach the fullness of the truth of the Eucharist without using the very words of the Council of Trent. That's after the Second Vatican Council, by the way, that Pope Paul VI writes that encyclical. And you'll find the Council of Trent being quoted and cited and referenced in numerous other documents of the Magisterium after the Second Vatican Council. This is absolutely fundamental. If you do not know what the Council of Trent says about the Eucharist, then your catechesis is incomplete. You don't have the full knowledge of the faith that the Church would like us all to have. So let's look at that. The first of the sessions, the three sessions, that deals with the Mass is session 13, which took place on the 11th of October, 1551. We're just a few days off of this being a, an anniversary there of that. It insists, well, let me give you the title, it has the decree concerning the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. That's the decree concerning the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. It insists that the real presence of the Lord is there after the consecration, after the words of consecration. The Lord Jesus is truly, really, and substantially contained under the species, which now means appearance, of bread and wine. Once again, truly, really, and substantially contained under the species. When a council uses that word truly, uh, which is very in the Latin, it means that we're not speaking allegorically. We hear it in the creed, true God from true God. That word there means this is not to be interpreted allegorically in this case. Truly, really, and substantially, the substance of the body and blood of Christ, real physical presence, is there. That is what makes the Eucharist the most holy sacrament, more excellent than all of the other sacraments. Because Christ, our true spiritual good, is present there, truly, really, and substantially, body and blood, soul and divinity. Body and blood, soul and divinity. This same session, 13, of the Council of Trent, insists upon the word transubstantiation. Trent, by the way, wasn't the first council to use this word. It had already been used by the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215. So it didn't just appear in the 16th century. The whole substance, according to the doctrine of transubstantiation, the whole substance of the bread is changed into the whole substance of the body of Christ. The whole substance of the wine is changed into the whole substance of the blood of Christ, which means no bread remains and no wine remains after the consecration. Therefore, we owe this most holy sacrament the worship which is owed to the one true God. It's called the latria, the worship due to the one true God. And that presence is permanent. 
it remains as long as the species survive. So as long as you still have that host, you still have the real presence of Christ, truly, really, and substantially, body and blood, soul and divinity. That 13th session says more wonderful things, but we're going to move now to the 21st session of Trent, which met on the 16th of July, 1562. Or that's when it promulgated its documents. This particular session deals with communion under both kinds. There really is no theological objection to communion under both kinds, but there are many practical problems with communion under both kinds. And it is possible that insistence upon receiving communion under both kinds can underlie or lead to an erroneous theological opinion. That erroneous theological opinion would be that if I receive under only one species, then I am not receiving both the body and the blood of the Lord. So the 21st session of the Council of Trent teaches that Christ, under the smallest particle of either species, either the bread or the wine, species here, just appearances, even if you just have a crumb, you have Christ whole and entire body and blood, soul and divinity, because Christ is risen from the dead. We receive in the Eucharist the living Lord, Jesus Christ. And in a living body, the flesh is not separate from the blood. So in receiving either one or the other, we actually receive both the body and blood of the Lord. That doctrine, once again, is called concomitance. I love putting that on quizzes for my students. Concomitance. The 22nd session of the Council of Trent in 1562 as well, is devoted to the sacrifice of the Mass. This is getting back now to the crucial issue, the crucial doctrine that Luther rejected and all Protestants following him. And I'm going to quote from the Council of Trent. Christ at his Last Supper left his beloved spouse, the Church, a visible sacrifice, such as the nature of man requires, whereby that bloody sacrifice once to be accomplished on the cross might be represented, the memory thereof remain, even to the end of the world, and its salutary effects applied to the remission of the sins which we daily commit. End quote. So Christ instituted this Eucharist as a visible sacrifice, which is the accomplishment, the remembrance, if you will, and the application of his one bloody sacrifice on the cross to us who participate and who offer that sacrifice and participate in communion. This same session of the Council of Trent says that the Roman canon, Eucharistic prayer number one, savors of holiness and piety and raises the mind up to God. Free from error, it is part the words of the Lord, part apostolic traditions, and part regulations of holy pontiffs. That's the Roman canon, which, as we saw, was completely thrown away by Luther and all Protestants after him. I'm going to stop with the doctrine of the Council of Trent 
and go on to the implementation of the liturgical reform that followed. The Council of Trent entrusted to the Pope the task of revising, let's say restoring, liturgical books. And the liturgical book that was used by a commission established by the popes was the first printed edition of the Roman Missal, Missale Romanum. That's your, your basic text that a priest needs to offer the Mass in the 16th century. Uh, that, when I say printed, I mean printed on a printing press, which was only invented in the 15th century. So the first Roman Missal printed was printed in 1474. Now, a commission established by the Pope after the Council of Trent takes that book as its starting point. And what it does is cut out some things to make it more streamlined. In particular, it takes away a number of saints who had been added, uh, saints' feast days. And the reason for this is so that the prayers and the readings of the daily Mass can cycle through more regularly. Because when you have a whole lot of particular prayers and readings for saints' days, you don't get through the readings and the prayers for the ferial days, that is, the regular weekdays. What I'm, doing, what I'm speaking of now is the revision of the Roman Missal, the Mass, that followed the Council of Trent. The exact same thing happens after the Second Vatican Council. The Council calls for a revision of liturgical books and entrusts the task to the Pope. The Pope establishes a commission which does the actual work. We're seeing the same patterns in the 16th century that we see in the 20th century. So the Roman Missal, as revised, and really there were a number of things that, that made the Mass lengthy that were later editions that were taken out, including a number of saints' feast days. Uh, it's published in 1570 as the Roman Missal, Missale Romanum. The purpose of those who revised it was to return to the ancient calendar of the city of Rome, which for them meant the calendar in the time of Pope Gregory VII, which, which is the 11th century. So for the 16th century, the 11th century was ancient. That gives you an idea. Uh, following the revision of liturgical books, Pope Sixtus V now established the Congregation of Rites in the year 1588. The Congregation of Rites existed in order to answer questions that people might have about how to implement the Roman liturgical books. The whole purpose of these books and the purpose of uh, the Congregation of Rites was to respond to a genuine need for revision of the liturgical rites and of the Mass and to provide a base text that could be used by the Catholic world. Because at this time, as you see with these reformers, people didn't hesitate to create their own Mass. And that's a dangerous pattern. For much of the Catholic world, then, this consolidation of liturgy produced a stable and reliable liturgy that provided the framework within which devotion would flourish for many hundreds of years. The major challenge to the Roman rites produced after the Council of Trent come from the Gallicanist circles of France, where our next session will begin. In the meantime, a brief review. The reformers of the 16th century, beginning with Martin Luther, sought to impose their theology on the Mass. The result was the ruin and chaos of the celebration of the Mass. The Council of Trent and the popes who followed it set about restoring, in a careful, humble manner, consistent 
with the received tradition, the celebration of the Mass. We will see this pattern repeat itself again in subsequent centuries. Topics of the next sessions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doctor. We're going to take our usual break, about three or four minutes, for those that need to leave. Okay, our okay. first question is from Elizabeth. Yes. I have been talking to an Anglican bishop in the Middle East this month, and also um, a minister here in the local area. I'm a former Anglican myself, and their question had to do with the Eucharist. They said they understood and they liked Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer's interpretation, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII. And he said that Jesus stood at the right hand of God, but his spirit entered us, really and truly, in the Eucharist. So their question is, why do you need to have a body? Why do you need to have Christ's body? So I answered, and I hope I'm correct, I said, the resurrected body, we are going to follow Christ by having a resurrected body sometime. And it was almost neo-gnostic to separate the body from the spirit. Mm -hmm. I was looking for books. I looked at Benedict Groeschel's book about the Eucharist, and I wonder if you could advise me further. St. Francis de Sale. Look at St. Francis de Sale. He has a whole, he wrote tracts that answered Calvinist arguments, and he addresses all these issues very concisely, very powerfully, and he actually won back the conversion of many Calvinists. He had the unfortunate job of being the Bishop of Geneva after the Reformation. Yes, and uh, that's the book I would recommend. I forget the title, but it's, it's a collection of his tracks. It, it, I believe Tan distributes it. The um, theological answer given by the Council of Trent is there is a distinction between the sacramental presence and what Trent calls the natural mode of presence. Christ in his natural mode of presence is at the right hand of the Father, but in the, he's sacramentally present on the altar. Why is that possible? Because the resurrected body is not limited by space and time the way our bodies are before they're resurrected and, and glorified. Indeed, this is Christ's glorified body, which also happens to be hypostatically united with the divinity and therefore can accomplish whatever it desires in heaven or on earth, even both at the same time. Uh, now I'm going to give you a brief, more biblical answer that might make more sense to an Anglican interlocutor. And that is, A, Christ says, this is my body, John 6, when he insists that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood, everybody leaves except the 12. And I know John 6 is a, is a real big issue. Luther at one point says John 6 doesn't have anything to do with the Eucharist. And at another point, he invokes John 6 to prove that the laity should receive under both species. Uh, okay, so it definitely has something to do with the Eucharist. Uh, but then the next way to look at it is Christ's sacrifice is, is, a, is a sacrifice of atonement, it's also the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice and a whole lot of types of sacrifice that you find in the Old Testament. In order to complete the sacrifice, one needs to partake of the animal that's offered. In other words, you have to partake of the sacrifice or you actually don't have any part in it. That's where communion does indeed become important. And it's important not that it be a communion and symbol, but it to be an actual participation in the sacrifice itself. 
And that's along the lines of a direction that I would say Pope Benedict XVI would go in because he very much looks at the Bible as a whole when he's talking about the liturgy. I have to stop. <laughs> okay, that was a brief answer. If the uh, church had made the position clear about this liturgy, how did it happen that the people in the 50s and 60s went off the rails so much? That's the topic of the next session. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for the perfunctory answer, but it's a big issue, and I will address it in the next session. So now you have to come back tomorrow night. To draw back the uh, topic of tonight's lecture to your original thesis, i.e. that reformers go off the rails when they seek instead political or theological power, do you think this was a conscious motive of Luther's? I, I do. Um, for example, if I were to tell you why he had to deny the sacrifice in the priesthood, um, it, it has to do with monasteries and chantry uh, chapels where masses were being offered for the dead, and these things were endowed. In other words, they were given lands that had regular incomes in order to pay for the, the upkeep of the building and the salary of the priest who was offering the private mass for the souls of the departed. Luther's theology of sacrifice is meant to appeal to the German princes who now have a theological reason to seize the lands that belong to the church, which is a political and, and economic end. This happens, by the way, everywhere these ideas become... T it, they're very tempting to rulers because once the rulers adopt these theological ideas, they have an excuse to seize all the wealth and land that belong to the Catholic Church. Happens in England, happens in Germany. The real miracle is that every prince in Europe didn't adopt Protestant ideas so that they could do the same. Hi, I think my uh, question is actually related to that. And I noted that you said that uh, they denied the sacrifice and that it had a couple of effects, and one of which was to remove the need for priests. I've often thought, well, he wanted to remove the authority that was all tied up with the priesthood and passing down the ordination in order to do that. He had to deny the sacrifice. In my mind, I think, just like what you were implying about the land, mm -hmm. preceding it was having to get rid of the authority. Yes. But you had to deny the ordination, and the ordination allows you to offer sacrifice. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And the Council of Trent makes a very fine point on it when it talks about the priesthood, because it has to... See, the whole reason that the Council of Trent needs to talk about every sacrament is because the sacramental system is the fundamental thing that was attacked by the Protestants. And when it talks about the priesthood, it, it explicitly makes the point that you need a priesthood to offer a sacrifice. So wherever you have the sacrifice, you need a priest. The priest has no reason to exist if he's not offering a sacrifice. And in particular, the sacrifices are offered for the forgiveness of sins. So yes, absolutely. And, and Trent's very explicit on that point. Uh, you said that, I think, at the Council of Trent in uh, one of the sessions that dealt with the Eucharist, it was held that the Eucharist body and blood are in both species as we receive the resurrected Christ. I know that it said that the sacrifice of Calvary is the same as the Last Supper, but at the Last Supper, we didn't have a resurrected Christ yet. We didn't have 
Christ risen. So how could this definition that Eucharist consists of receiving the resurrected Christ be true? Yeah. That, that lies in the fact that the crucifixion of Christ is actually the crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God. And even though it happens at one point in time, it transcends all time. That's why now, so many years later, we're actually partaking of something that happened at a moment in the past. It's just as miraculous to say that they were able to partake in something that was going to take part at a moment in the future. Thank you very much, Dr. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.